I would rather share one lifetime with you than face all the ages of this world alone. Hey everyone, welcome to Watch Party, Lord of the Rings on Prime, where we're looking at Tolkien's works through the lens of adaptation, with a special focus on Amazon's upcoming big-budget adaptation of The Legendarium. I'm joined today by your host, Jen Gallagher, a.k.a. Arwen, the Even Star. And I am joined today by your host, Michael Rowland, a.k.a. Smaug the Destroyer. Uh, On today's pod, we are going to be spilling some hot copyright tea, and then we're going to wrap up the finished portion of Aldarian and Rendis, the Mariner's Wife. Now, before we get started, we'd like to remind you that if you like what we're doing, please subscribe, uh, favorite us, uh, rate us, share us with your friends, and on social media. Sharing us through those platforms or through your social media channels will help raise our visibility and uh, help others to find us. And we really appreciate that. So, Jen, what do we got in the news this week? Well, we've got one of our channels that we frequently watch. Uh, there's a YouTube channel called History of the Ages. And there was a, a, a small drama that has played out um, between History of the Ages and the Tolkien Escape. So History of the Ages... Big drama for History of the Ages, that's for very sure. Very big drama. And we were really sad to see this play out. Um, we hope it gets resolved. But the Tolkien Estate essentially shut them down um, due to copyright infringement because some of their content uh, was was borrowed and they didn't have the rights to it and this is this is kind of a hot button issue in the Tolkien fandom because uh it can seem like it's antithetical to what Tolkien would have wanted right sharing these stories and ideas and arguably a YouTube channel like History of the Ages which talks about Tolkien's works and does deep dives into uh certain characters and stories from the whole entire legendarium uh, it, it really helps get this this content to a new audience and a young audience, arguably, uh, who is going to watch these YouTube videos. So it's it's a tough uh, it's a tough road um, to toe. It's like a tough, thin line that you're walking a tightrope when you're trying to do these videos. Um, you have to be careful and make sure you get permissions for this kind of content. Um, but what do you what do you think, Michael? Yeah, well, History of the Ages, if you're not familiar with them, I mean, they're they, they really one of the most active YouTube channels that talk about Tolkien. They had like millions of views, something like 300 videos, and they really are good quality. They're kind of, you know, they're like Nerd of the Rings, Men of the West. Um, they're one of the more prolific um, uh, Tolkien contra- content creators on YouTube. And what happened, uh, you know, we're framing this as a dispute between them and the Tolkien estate, but that's not the whole story. Uh you know, YouTube has a very strict copyright infringement policy. They have like a three strikes and you're out policy. Uh, and so if someone flags your content for a copyright violation um, and they just submit a complaint to YouTube, then there's a whole process to um, through YouTube, sort of like a little, you know, YouTube has their own administrative process to deal with that. But they have a pretty strict three strikes and you're out policy. So if you get dinged three times, kind of whether or not it's resolved, um, it can, they'll shut you down. So, uh, and history of the ages, the two guys who, who run that channel, they put a video up on Facebook, sort of really explaining everything coming totally clean and really, uh, uh being very honest about what had happened. And I, and I guess, um, so they, they got three strikes. The first one was because they had outsourced some of their research on a few videos. For the most part, they do things themselves, but it is a lot of work to put these up. 
uh, every week. I mean, you know, we have uh, we do a lot of work to do our podcast. We don't get it up every week all the time. It's, it's a lot of work, and they do a lot of videos, and so they outsource some of the re- outsourced some of their research for a few videos. And I guess on one of the videos, their researcher had pulled some of the content, some some of the subject matter research from, I guess, like a, a post that was on a Reddit thread or something. And it got spotted by the original author of that commentary. And they flagged them on YouTube. Uh, the guys from History of the Ages apparently reached out to that person and got it resolved and, you know, said, mea culpa, we're sorry, we didn't, you know, we, we didn't discover that our researcher that we'd outsourced it to had done that. And, um, and, and they resolved it, but nonetheless, the complaint had been made to YouTube. The second one was they were flagged by the Tolkien estate because history of the ages, they would start a lot of their videos with a dramatic read in from Tolkien's works. And I, I guess, I don't know the specific legal reasons why their read ins uh, were deemed a violation by the Tolkien estate. I think maybe they were kind of long. That's probably what it was. Um, so the Tolkien estate flagged them. Um, History of the Ages immediately pulled down all their videos or, or removed all of the dramatic read-ins that the Tolkien estate was complaining about. Uh, they asked the Tolkien estate to to rescind their their complaints, but they wouldn't do that. So whatever, you know, they tried to resolve it. So that was two, and then there was a third one, uh, and I forget exactly what the details Wasn't are, it a but piece it was some of sort art? of I think. I think it was a piece of it art. It was a piece of yeah, art that the author had not given, the illustrator had not given permission to be used. And so the illustrator right, flagged right. them. And I think that was, I think that was another case of them um, getting it from one of the researchers. I, I can't recall specifically, but you know, they reached out after the complaint, they reached out to that artist, they resolved it. The artist contacted YouTube and said, I don't want to pursue this complaint anymore. Please, you know, pull back my complaint. But the wheels of justice move slowly at YouTube because they are dealing with, you know, hundreds of thousands of videos all the time. And so their staff is overburdened. So um, history of the ages was once the third strike came in, their channel was shut down and for like a whole week um, and they weren't able to produce videos and all their videos were lost. Um, but eventually, so, you know, there is a silver lining to the story eventually because the uh, a couple of them were resolved, they were able to get in touch with YouTube and um, get them to rescind the cancellation. So their channel is going to be back up again. Uh, but, uh, you know, all the history of their views, their millions of views are has evaporated. So, you know, for professional YouTube content creators who rely on the number of views that they get in terms, which drives the their monetization of their content, you know, that's a big loss for them. But nonetheless, it, it is good that they were able to resolve it and YouTube's going to let them back up. So, I'm sure a very, very scary and dramatic week for for those guys, but I'm glad it had a more or less happy ending and they're able to continue making the really quality content that they had been making. It's great content, and I'm glad that they are going to be producing more content. I definitely watch their channel. I think it's really high quality, and these issues are so sticky, and I I, I'm sort of of two minds about it because I think the nature of art and and literature and these different things is that you can't contain it. It's meant to be shared. But of course, we have to respect the legalities around it. And when money is involved and ideas are involved and copyright, um, it does get very sticky. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that this is resolved and I will continue to to follow them and support those guys. I wonder if one of the reasons that the Tolkien estate is so strict about enforcing copyrights and being very careful about who they let produce 
adaptations and adapted content in various mediums is because of an issue that occurred, I think back in the, I don't know, 70s. I forget the exact timeline. I'll have to look it up. But I mean, a, a, a lot of um, copyright holders strictly enforce their copyrights anyway. So they don't really need a reason. But there was an instance where the copyright laws in England differed from the copyright laws in the United States. And so mm. the publishers hadn't uh, taken the necessary steps to make sure that the United States copyright was still good. And so there was actually an issue with Tolkien's works entering the public domain and another publisher producing sort of bootleg copies of the Lord of the Rings and selling them for like 75 cents. Because in the United States, they argued, well, now it's public domain. You have not preserved your copyright. And there was some sort of, you know, they were able to resolve it. There was a fight, there was a battle, and they were able to, I don't know, fix whatever deficiencies were in, um, uh, had, had arisen from their failure to maintain their copyright. But I bet that that experience really caused the, you know, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien himself and then, you know, his son Christopher Tolkien as his literary executor after Tolkien's death to be really uh, aware of the potential problems that can arise if you don't pay attention to copyright. So I wonder if that experience, that history has played a role in um, guiding how the Tolkien estate approaches these issues. Huh. I'm sure. And I, I think that since his works are so extensive um, that they want to make sure that they preserve the integrity of those works. And well, we're actually, I mean, we're seeing this play out a little bit with Amazon and I'm interested to get the full backstory on how they got the rights and which rights they got, uh, which works they got the rights to. We don't know still for sure, for certain. And so I, I am very piqued to know when we'll get the full story on what they were able to negotiate and how that process played out. I hope that, you know, that is, that comes to light uh, once, you know, right. the series well, is out. And I bet it's, yeah, I, and I bet it's never fully disclosed. I mean, you know, under what circumstances is an official from Amazon going to say, here's our agreement. <laughs> you know, they're not going to put that on the web. But, I'm interested. You know, we'll just, we'll be able to, we'll be able to see the show. And so maybe we'll be able to deduce from that what sure. they got the rights to, you know. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, these issues are dicey, but. You know, I'm a fan of anything that is getting, you know, spreading the gospel of Tolkien, if you will. So, right. <laughs> so good for those guys. I hope they're not. I hope they keep right. going. Well, and speaking of Lord of the Rings content, we mentioned on our last episode that uh, a new podcast is coming out called The Friendship Onion, um, starring our two favorite hobbits. Well, two of my favorite hobbits from Peter Jackson's adaptation of The Lord of the Rings, um, Mary and Pippin. And actually, I'm embarrassed that I, I'm blanking. So Billy Boyd, Dominic Monaghan, Dominic Monaghan, or Mahoganing. I don't know. Mag- <laughs> Say Mag- his last name. McGonaghan. Yeah. <laughs> McGonagall. Uh, we're we're officially fired from being Tolkien fans. Um, <laughs> but Billy Boyd and Dominic Emmerman have started a podcast, The Friendship Onion, where of course they're going to be talking a lot about Tolkien because it kind of is at the center of their friendship. It's where they met. Um, But of course, they're also going to be talking about other things in their life. And the first episode came out uh, about a week ago from the date that we're recording this podcast about a week ago. And I listened to it and it was awesome. It was super fun. They're really funny guys. And they talked a lot about Tolkien. They did some Tolkien trivia. And uh, it, it was everything I hoped it would be. And I'm excited to keep listening. So 
we're not going to, you know, promote every other podcast in the world, but the, you know, this one we were promoting because it's, it's great fun. Those guys are so great. And I've definitely followed some of their careers, you know, post Lord of the Rings. I followed Elijah Wood, who's done some really interesting stuff. And um, Billy Boyd, I haven't seen, you know, in much, but I have, I mean, Dominic has been in Lost. He was, you know, obviously in that hit crazy breakthrough show. And um, and I know he's done a number of other things, but but he yeah, that was kind of his breakout role after Lord of the Rings. So I followed his career a little bit, but it's so great to to see them and hear them again doing something like this. Right. Billy Boyd was an outlander. I don't know if you know that. Oh, I didn't know that. I must not have gotten to that episode but yeah huh but yeah he's been busy but you're right dominic uh, i mean being on lost you know going from lord of the rings to lost those are a couple of very very hit franchises yeah very i wonder yeah i wonder if after that he just decided to take a long breather <laughs> but I, I know jen that you're like me that you know one of my favorite things to do when the dvds came out was just to watch all the um behind the scenes which is almost honestly as good as the movies themselves it's so totally. fun to watch the rapport of of the cast who clearly just love each other. I mean, yes. true, true lifelong friendships emerge. Yes. Um, and they're, the humor from Billy Boyd and Dominic McGonaghan um, is a big part of that because they're so they're so freaking funny. They're so and, funny. Uh, they're always ribbing each other. It's really They cool. were so well cast, such chemistry as buddies, and it really comes through um in the movie i mean i'm just picturing their audition you know it, pro- it must have been just like instantaneous they knew like that's going to be mary and pippin um yeah just electric right. you know that friend chemistry um yeah so super enjoyable check out that podcast and moving on to our fun little segment that was all michael's idea so i'm blaming him for this um <laughs> I'm a little reticent to attempt this, but last week we tried the one breath summary of what we're of our deep dive or what we're going to do in the podcast. And so uh, last week, Michael went and did an excellent job. He actually got through the whole summary in one breath and enunciated very well. So I'm actually really intimidated right now. I'm, I'm full transparency, um, but I'm going to do my best. So I'm gonna take one breath. And you can do it. Do the summary. I am. I'm just excited that I get to breathe a normal amount this time. I know. Well, I'm gonna fill up my diaphragm. You're supposed to, you know, it's a singer's <laughs> trick. You fill up. You're supposed to. If your chest is moving, you're doing it wrong. You just want your stomach to move. So that's true. As a singer, you have an inherent advantage in this game. I do I bet know you breath control. Fit in twice as much breath yeah. control. But oh no, now now you've talked me up, and I'm gonna fail here all right i'm gonna go on with confidence ready arendus father-in-law gets in touch with arendus and orders their joint return back to armenelos to be made ready arendus refuses aldarian does not return however arendus orders their joint house in the capital to be shuttered she devotes herself to Ancalame, her daughter and never lets the girl leave her side is even her sole teacher she learns to speak the elven tongue but arendus does not teach her the numenorean language that her father so what and Gollumay is raised in a childless household. Oh my gosh, that was so bad. I don't like this segment. I think we should put a Twitter poll out and vote this segment down because I'm so bad at it. I'm sorry, folks. That was my, that was it. I started laughing. That's what happened. Uh, laughing will ruin the whole one breath thing because it's going to be. Oh, that was great. That was great. You almost got through it. You, <laughs> so you almost you almost got don't there. Don't patronize me. <laughs> That's 
not even part way through. All right. Well, the, the only the only thing that got you was the laughing. It's like it's like well, doing I a wasn't enunciating like, at all. So it's it's difficult. It's difficult. All for your entertainment. Um, but <laughs> lest we waste one more second, we are going to jump into our deep dive and get this going because we have a lot of amazing content to get through so and just and just so you all know we are coming up at the end of the story and you know today we're going to get through the rest of the finished narrative the part that's finished of course the story itself is part of the unfinished tale so it is unfinished but we're going to get really right up to the end of the part that Tolkien had finished and there's a bunch of other content that is sketched out that Christopher Tolkien gives us uh, in a summary fashion at the end and we will talk about that in another episode we're going to have a little bit more Aldarian and Arendis uh, to come, but we are finishing up the narrative portion today. So it's, um, I'm excited. You know, we, I've enjoyed this story so far and we're coming right up, right up to the end. Yes. This has been such a fun journey. I hope you guys have enjoyed it as well. Um, and that being said, we're going to go back to our leading lady. So when we last saw mm-hmm. Arendis, she had dismissed the elven birds that were given to her as a wedding gift. And she dismisses them in this really tragic fashion you know, they're they're sitting together and she says, sweet fools fly away. This is no place for such joy as yours. Their song ceased and they flew up over the trees. Thrice they wheeled above the roofs and they went away westward. Um, so that's a really sad scene. You know, these two are a reminder. Mm-hmm. These two birds are a reminder of the union that she had that she no longer has. So after uh, after this two years pass and Arendis's father-in-law the king he gets in touch with Arendis and he orders um, her to return back to Armenelos and for the house to be made ready for Aldarion's return because he was supposed to have returned after two years so she sends back a very sassy but graceful reply because she is not keen on returning and waiting on this guy who's left her so I'm going to read her response that she sends back to the king it says I will come if you command me Atar Aranya, but have I a duty now to hasten? Will it not be time enough when his sail is seen in the east? And to herself she said, Will the king have me wait upon the quays like a sailor's lass? Would that I were, but I am so no longer. I have played that part to the full. So she's she's like, no, no way, I'm going there. You know, I I've I've been the woman who's pining away and waiting on this guy, and I'm not doing it anymore. So Aldarion and her her ex her external do- dialogue is always spicy enough, but her internal dialogue is super spicy. Super spicy, you know? yeah. Well, she's had it. She is completely done at this point with his him, you know, and his waiting for him to return. This has just been time and time again. He has left and left her hanging so she's 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 done she's over it so and aldarion does not return he does not return after two years big surprise surprise surprise. um and arendis is is angry obviously and she orders that their house their joint house in the capital she orders it to be shuttered and she at this point devotes herself entirely to uncolume her daughter she never lets the girl leave her side and she insists on being her sole teacher. So she teaches. And there's a line, there's a line in here that I like, I want to point out where it says "Then horrendous grew hard and silent, which is kind of a variant of um, hardened his heart or hardened her heart, which is something we see in a lot of other stories where if someone hardens their heart, it's, it's a really negative thing. You know, it, it's a sign that something's going wrong. So 
um, I just wanted to point that out because it's interesting that he uses that language. Then Arendus grew hard and silent. You know, this is there's not a happy future. There's not a nice life that she's creating for herself after this because she has grown hard and silent. Yes, and like you said, she's she's like I'm I'm done with Eldarion. I'm removing myself from society. I'm all about my daughter, and I'm gonna s- smother her. Yes, death, it's, it 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 does come off as like the smothering mother. She never, you know, she doesn't let. Uh, and Colin may go anywhere, do much without her. Um, she teaches her this the elven tongue, but she does not teach her the Numenorian language um, that her father speaks. Very significant. Very significant. Um, so she, she kind of picks up here and there tidbits of the Numenorian language uh, from the women. There are only women in the household working and helping and um but they are these servants fear their mistress and Calame is basically being mm-hmm. raised in a joyless household. So it says no music yeah. is heard. Uh, there's not laughter. There's not music. And it's a pretty somber, sober existence. So it's as if. And there's a there's a parallel here that I want to point out, um, you know, with her refusing to teach and Calame uh, the Elvish language um, or excuse me, um, it, it, refusing to teach in Calame the, the language that her father speaks. Obviously, Tolkien's a philologist. And so um, when there's a divide in language, Tolkien places great emphasis on that. And there's a parallel here to a similar thing that happens before the fall of Numenor in its entirety. So before the great downfall, um, as the king, as the Numenorians are um, getting bitter and pissed off about the fact that, they're, that they don't have eternal life like the elves do, as a sign of the Numenorians growing farther and farther apart from the elves, um, the elvish language becomes disfavored and then actually outlawed. And that the outlawing, the disfavoring and outlawing of the elvish language in Numenor sort of tracks very closely their decline. Ooh, that's so interesting. And, and so we're seeing a very similar thing here, right? I mean, um, Arendis uses language to cut revenge me off from her As father revenge also yeah. it's a form of like mm-hmm. she is my daughter you know she's not learning she's not going to speak your native tongue and you know mm-hmm. depriving them of that connection yeah. yeah so it's it's pretty intense and and Colome is you know being raised in this environment but um, there is a portion, a section of the narrative where she encounters a boy. She encounters a boy for the first time who's out working. And this is like a really small snippet in the book. And I, nothing really comes of this relationship, but I do, we can talk about this later, but I do wonder if Tolkien had intended for this to be a budding romance because this is a common... So he's the, he's the son of... Um, a guy of a shepherd in the area, but who had gone away with Aldarian, who had joined the the guild adventurers. Right. So he's the son of a shepherd, basically. But she she encounters him, and it's the first boy she's ever seen. And they have this, you know, kind of sweet little exchange where, you know, she he tells her, "You look very thin. Will you have some bread?" And it's you know a, a really quick little exchange. And um, like I said, I do wonder if this would have uh, turned into something like. She, you know, has this forbidden romance with a common commoner, yada, yada. Um, and we don't really get to see any of that play out because this is unfinished. But yeah. but if I were making this into an ad, if I were adapting this for the screen, I would absolutely play that up. 
Well, and something similar was contemplated by Tolkien. So we get this in, in, in sort of summary fashion by Christopher Tolkien. This is after the finished portion of the narrative, but uh, we get a sketch that's included by Christopher Tolkien that she does fall in with someone who represents himself as a shepherd boy, but who turns out actually to be of the royal line, um, have royal blood. And so he sort of tricks her sort of into falling in love with him, thinking that he's just a commoner. And she wouldn't have fallen in love with him if, if she knew he was a highborn person. And then, voila, I'm highborn. Now we can get married. And she's really pissed. So there, there is actually uh, a related plot line that emerges with her falling in love with a, a shepherd boy or someone who she thinks uh, is a perfect. shepherd boy. Yeah. So she basically, she encounters this boy. They have an exchange. And she figures out that this boy has a father who is out to sea with her father. And then she confronts her mother about about Aldarion after this meeting. Well, but can, can you read the, I mean, the line after she meets the boy is so funny. So Ancalame goes to Zaman, who's sort of like, a, you know, a washerwoman, a woman that works in her household. And after she talks to the boy, Ancalame says, what noisy thing was that? Said a boy, yeah. A boy, said Zaman, if you know what that is. But how should you? They're breakers and eaters, mostly. That one is ever eating, but not to no purpose. A fine lad, his father will find him when he comes back. But if that is not soon, he'll scarce know him. I might say that of others. Has the boy then a father, too? Said Acalame. <laughs> it's like Acalame's never seen a boy. He doesn't even yeah. know what one looks like. And then she discovered, she's told that this boy has a father. And she goes, he has a father? Like as if father's are an unusual thing to have because she's never had a father and Arendis has never talked to her about her father. So fathers and boys are a complete mystery to her. It's it's totally mind-boggling, yeah, honestly. It's, it's really strange. And it shows the depths of, you know, how sheltered she's been uh, from the outside world. So, yeah, that's a really right. important exchange. And I have a feeling it would have, it, it clearly would have been more important, you know, had this been a finished work. As you said, after this, experience when she sees a boy for the first time and is told this boy has a father she confronts her mother about her own father is my father also called the lord aldarion he was said arendus but why do you ask her voice was quiet and cool but she wondered and was troubled for no word concerning aldarion had passed between them before and calame did not answer the question when will he come back she said do not ask me said arendus i did not know Never, perhaps, but do not trouble yourself, for you have a mother, and she will not run away while you love her. And Calame did not speak of her father again. Wow. Um, That, you have to imagine, was like a really tense exchange. And it's interesting that she hadn't asked before about her father. Like, I'm imagining that it was, she definitely knew it was a taboo Mm -hmm. in the household and had never quite worked up the courage but is now to that age where she's just really really curious right and Arendis, i think we've seen versions of this type of character before where a parent wants to pretend that the other parent doesn't exist and resents the child for being curious you know it's like why aren't right. i good enough and obviously that's never like, of course, the child's going to be curious. How can you possibly be mad at the child for being curious about their other parent? But um, I think we've seen this type of character before. And Arendis is, is that to the T. And th- these lines, I mean, she really comes off as controlling, you know, loving, but also threatening. Yeah. Uh, you know, she says, you have a mother and she will not run away while you love her. 
kind of like, you know, you, you better love me <laughs> or or you'll lose me too type of thing. It's almost like a veiled threat. It's really bizarre. It's also like a little cruel to imply that she doesn't have a father because he ran away. Oh, totally. <laughs> which is true. Right. Which is true. Like that is what happened. But this is a child of seven. Mm-hmm. She's seven, I think. Right. And it's not the child's fault. Right. That's not because right. Uncommon didn't like, love there her. There might be a gentler delivery. Right. right. <laughs> so, um, so after this exchange, a few years pass, and when Akalame is nine years old, Aldarion finally returns. Uh, but as you can imagine, there's no one there to greet him. People aren't really too excited because he's been gone not just a long time, but years longer than he was supposed to be gone. Uh, and he is dismayed to find his house shuttered. You know, remember Arendus had shuttered the house and gone back to the Westlands. So he he. No one greets him, so he goes home. No one's at home. No one's there to tell him uh, where his family is. So he seeks out his father and is like, um, what's the deal? But his father, the king, spoke to him as a king to a captain whose conduct is in question. So I think he, you know, you've gotten a sense of what Aldarion is like <laughs> up to this point. He doesn't do so well with criticism, and he's about to get a lot of it. You've been long away, he said coldly. It is more than three years now since the date that you set for your return. Alas, said Aldarion, even I have become weary of the sea, and for long my heart has yearned westward. But I have been detained against my heart. There is much to do, and all things go backward in my absence. I do not doubt it, said Menelder. You will find it true here also in your right land, I fear. That I hope to redress, said Aldarion. But the world is changing again. Outside, nigh on a thousand years have passed since the lords of the West sent their power against Angband. And those days are forgotten, or wrapped in dim legend among men of Middle-earth. They are troubled again, and fear haunts them. I desire greatly to consult with you, to give account of my deeds, and my thought concerning what should be done. You shall do so, said Menelder. Indeed, I expect no less, but there are other matters which I judge more urgent. Let a king first rule well his own house, ere he correct others. It is said, it is true of all men. I will now give you counsel, said a elder. You have also a life of your own. Half of yourself you have neglected. To you I say now, go home. Aldarion stood suddenly still, and his face was stern. If you know, tell me, he said. Where is my home? Where your wife is, said Menelder. You have broken your word to her, whether by necessity or no. She dwells now in Amerie, in her own house, far from the sea. Thither you must go at once. Had any word been left for me, whither to go, I would have gone directly from the haven, said Aldarion. But at least I need not now ask tidings of strangers. He turned then to go, but paused, saying, Captain Aldarion has forgotten somewhat that belongs to his other half, which in his waywardness he also thinks urgent. He has a letter that he was charged to deliver to the king in Armenelos. Presenting it to Menelder, he bowed and left the chamber. And within an hour, he took horse and rode away. The night was falling. With him, he had but two companions, men from his ship, Hendrik of the Westlands and Ulbar, who came from Amerie. So he's he's getting a tongue wagon from his pappy. Yes, pappy is not happy. And he's, yeah, he's chastising him. He's like, your home is with your wife. You broke your word to her. You said you would come back after two years. And you, once again, you didn't. 
And yeah, he deserves every bit of this, of this Tom wagging. So he does, he does finally ride to a Marier, does finally come face to face with Arendis on the threshold of their home. And uh, their exchange is not exactly that warm. No, it is not. So we're going to read that exchange. You come late, my lord, she said. I had long ceased to expect you. I fear that there is no such welcome prepared for you as I had made when you were due. Mariners are not hard to please. That is well, she said, and she turned back into the house and left him. Then two women came forward and an old crone who went down the steps. As Aldarion went in, she said to the men in a loud voice so that he could hear her, There is no lodging for you here. Go down to the homestead at the hill's foot. No, Zamin, said Ulbar, I'll not stay. I am for home, by the Lord Aldarion's leave. Is all well there? Well enough, said she. Your son has eaten himself out of your memory, but go and find your own answers. You'll be warmer than your captain. So they have this this tense exchange, and Arendis decides she will not dine with Aldarion. So she informs him that a guest room will be made ready for him. Um, and she's pretty snarky in this exchange, and she says if if he is cold, he can call for a fire, which is uh, pretty, um, yeah, that's pretty loaded. So yeah, she's like, you know, sorry, I don't have a better setup for you. And he's like, I'm easy to please. And she's like, that's good. Go to your room and like walks away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like goodbye. She's, he's getting nothing. She is not, not pleased to see him. So essentially um he he's angered by this treatment so he wakes up the next morning and he plans to return to the capital so he he's his plan is he's going to return and he's going to summon Arendis now that he's realized that she is she is completely cooled on him he's going to summon her and tell her to bring in column A at once um, so as to not, quote unquote, not have dealings with her upon her own ground. So he prepares to leave and Arendis, who is described as, you know, she has not slept all night, addresses him. So we're going to read that dialogue. You leave more promptly than you came, my lord, she said. I hope that, being a mariner, you have not found this house of women irksome already to go thus before your business is done. Indeed, what business brought you hither? May I learn it before you leave? I was told in our Menelos that my wife was here and had removed my daughter hither, he answered. As to the wife, I am mistaken, it seems. But have I not a daughter? You had one some years ago, she said, but my daughter has not risen yet. Then let her rise while I go for my horse. Ooh, chilling. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and did you and did you catch that? Did you catch that? You know, he my says, daughter. I mean, yep, yeah, yeah. He's like, don't I have a daughter? And 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 she says, you had one, but my daughter has not yet risen. Yeah, yeah my Ooh. daughter. And you know, it's she has raised this girl. He has not been present for her entire life. So I understand. Like I understand the anger mm-hmm. and the disdain that she feels. And this really is man. a battleground. They are. They're trading barbs. I mean, Tolkien uses that that language that you know he doesn't want to treat with her on on her uh, territory as if this is a battle, you know, and he needs to get like the home field advantage or doesn't want to be on her home field. Uh, and it really is they're exchanging barbs. They're trying to get the upper hand. Um, and again, of course, he's totally in the wrong. 
he doesn't take one second to say i'm sorry no. um you know he, he he's so prideful that he cannot um debase himself he can't lower himself to say i'm sorry or to acknowledge fault he needs to be welcomed and it seems like he's the type of guy like they have opposing personalities. If he needs her to be gracious and forgiving, and if she's forgiving, then he'll say he's sorry, which isn't the right way to do it, but that's kind of just seems like his his attitude. And Arendis needs the opposite. She wants him to say, I'm sorry, so that she can be gracious and forgiving, you know, but neither of them will make the first move. And so neither of them does what they should do and says, I'm sorry, or forgives. Right. And so they just get stuck at this, uh, you know, it's uh, uh, unstoppable force, immovable object problem. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a, it's really unfortunate because they've definitely, the gloves are off at this point, but um, I'm going to keep reading because there's some important dialogue to your point here. Um, Right. It says it's basically the the book continues that Arendis would have withheld on column A from her father, but she is afraid, you know, to fall out of favor with the king and the council, and uh, she fears retribution. So when Aldarion returns from rounding up his men, he's he's gotten ready to go. He shows back up and he sees Encolame, his daughter, for the first time in years. So we're going to read that encounter, this encounter that he has with his daughter. Who are you, she said, and why do you bid me rise so early before the house is stirring? Aldarion looked at her keenly, and though his face was stern, he smiled within, for he saw there a child of his own rather than of horrendous for all her schooling. You knew me once, Lady Encalame, he said. But no matter. Today I am but a messenger from Armenelos to remind you that you are the daughter of the king's heir, and, so far as I can now see, you shall be his heir in your turn. You will not always dwell here. But go back to your bed now, my lady, until your maidservant wakes, if you will. I am in haste to see the king. Farewell. He kissed the hand of Ancolome and went down the steps, then he mounted and rode away with a wave of his hand. Arendis alone at a window watched him riding down the hill, and she marked that he rode towards Hirastorni and not towards Amenelos. Then she wept, from grief but still more from anger. She had looked for some penitence that she might extend after rebuke, pardon, if prayed for, but he had dealt with her as if she were the offender, and ignored her before her daughter. Too late she remembered the words of Nuneth long before, and she saw Aldarion now as something large and not to be tamed, driven by a fierce will, more perilous when chill. She rose and turned from the window, thinking of her wrongs. Perilous, she said, I am steel hard to break. So he would find, even were he the king of Numenor. Yeah, so, this passage perfectly illustrates, illustrates that point. Yeah, exactly. So she's she's actually hardened even more after this exchange because she was definitely looking, as, as she says, for some penitence, for mm-hmm. an opening of some sort. And there's just no opening between them for there to be reconciliation. And so it's just becoming uglier and uglier. Right. You know, and 
And he did, you know, she says he, even if he were the king of Numenor, he would have found out that, like, this is my character. I am steel. I am strong and hard to break. Right. Um, and we see that she has, kind of does stand up in soft ways to the current king of Numenor, you know, like when he tries to summon her to to be at the Havens to to wait for Aldarion, she kind of demurs and is like, eh, I don't have to come now, do I? You know? Um, yeah so. well she she's definitely somebody who is the driver she's in the driver's seat uh, in this in her own car you know to the degree that she is allowed to be um in this society that she's in but yeah i think she's a really she's an interesting character yeah for sure I- they're both so stubborn and they're both you know unwilling to to bend and we get a little glimpse here of the future that Aldarion sees in his daughter elements of himself that Arendus has not driven out, you know, the part of her that, that is his daughter. Um, and so that makes him happy knowing that given time, um, he hasn't, that he hasn't lost her altogether and that he will be able to, well, he thinks that because he sees something in her that's like him, that they will be able to connect later on. At least that's what I get from this. And this is an important moment because he decides right here that she will be the queen of Numenor. He decides that. Oh, yeah. That wasn't the precedent, you know, beforehand. But he he looks at her and he's he's sort of um, sizing her up. And and he he decides on the spot, like, this is his heir. This is she is going to rule Numenor. And she's the very first queen. So this is pretty. Yeah, that's pretty significant. significant. And I Mm -hmm. and I also read between the lines that part of this is like a little, yeah, screw you, horrendous. It's like, you know, you thought you would take my daughter from me. She's actually mine now. It's like a possessiveness. I think there's a little bit of possession that's going on here too. Oh, definitely. Definitely. He's like wooing and column A to this future when he is, he has played no part in, in her past. So, right. it, you know, this is sort of the classic, like the child is caught in the tug, tug of war between the parents who are on bad terms. We're seeing it play out here. So there's a a little line in here that's sort of a blink and you miss it type of line um, where she's watching him right away and it says she marked that he rode towards uh, Yara Storni and not towards Armenelos and then she wept from grief but still more from anger. And the reason that that pisses her off is because, I mean, A, he said, I'm going to go to Armenelos, which is the capital that's where the king is that's where he should be staying um but instead of going directly there he's going to his friend's house he's going to a neighboring land that's what uh here stormy stormy is um and so it, it upsets her that he lied and that he's instead of staying with his family and trying to reconcile and make things right he's you know gonna go hang out with his boys <laughs> or hang out with one of his friends and that's what he'd rather do um so that's that's why that is so meaningful um and that brings us sort of adding to, to, insult to injury. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And that brings us to the next passage passage. So he does go to Hero Storny. So that's the house of not just a friend, but uh, Halatan, his cousin. Um, and because he wanted to basically rest there and think about his life, think about what he's going to do next. Um, there he cautions the young lad, the same young lad that, that, uh, are, uh, and Kalame met the first boy that she'd ever met, um, cautions him uh, against going to sea. And 
then gifts that boy's mother, so his cousin's wife, a jewel from the king of the elves. Now, this is from Gilgalad. So this is a gift from Gilgalad that he's giving to his cousin's wife and not to his own wife. And I think we can assume that it was originally intended to go to Arendus. That would be the only thing that would be appropriate. Instead, he's giving this gift to his cousin's wife, which really is inappropriate. And that's the type of thing that's going to make waves. Two people are going to talk. It's going to reach Arendus' ears. It's going to upset her even more. And I don't know if Aldarion is just not thinking about this, not thinking about the ramifications and how inappropriate it is, or maybe he is aware of it and doesn't care and he's going to do it anyway. Um, but it is really kind of shocking that he would he would do that. But it just goes to show how deep the rift is now at this point and how irreconcilable he, th- he thinks they are. Yeah, this is kind of reading maybe too far into things, but in this passage um, from the book, it says that when he came near, he heard the sound of music and he found the shepherds making merry for the homecoming of Ulbar with many marvelous tales and gifts. The wife of Ulbar garlanded was dancing with him to the playing of pipes. Um, and so he's dancing with this this woman and then he gifts her a jewel. Like, I wonder if... I. Again, like if this were an adaptation, I would definitely play this scene up and maybe it's him spiraling into like into, hey, I'm I'm living like a single guy now, like I'm cutting ties with right, right. and it's clearly over. So I'm doing exactly what I want to do. I so and actually me like reading a lot onto this. Right. But that's where I would take it if I were doing an adaptation. So I, that's an interesting take. I actually think that I read it a little differently that. This uh, encounter with Arendus going so badly, it does upset him and makes, you know, he's he's angry and he leaves and he does everything wrong because of his pride. But I think he still wishes it could be different and it upsets him. And and it especially upsets him when he sees the other side of the coin, how things could be in a happy family. You know, he sees this family, um, this other family uh, celebrating the return of um, their family member and I think it's kind of like a, a sad smile type of thing. It, it makes him happy to see someone else's happiness, but it reminds him of what he doesn't have. So there's a sadness there. And I think that's that's the context mm. I imagine him giving this gift to the, to um, his cousin's wife. That, yeah, um, you know. that's perhaps more true to the Tolkien spirit than my like sleazy idea. <laughs> But. Or maybe it's a little bit of both, you know, I don't know, you know, sleaze and uh, <laughs> sweet sadness, they all go together. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, so this this scene is essentially, you know, he gives, he does this little stop off with at his cousin's house and then he he goes home. He rides home. And and actually the line is here. Uh, then he rode on alone to Armenelos and never again set foot in Amerier. So never again. Yeah, yeah so that really never. puts uh, a, some punctuation on the ending of the sentence. You know, there's a real period on this relationship um, with Arendus. It's it's over. It is over. So meanwhile, back in Armenelos, Menelder, Aldarion's father, reads the letter that. That Aldarion gave him before he left. So Michael's going to read this letter. Menelder breaks the seal of this letter and it reads. Orionion Gilgalad, son of Thingon, to Tar Menelder of the line of Arendil. Greeting. 
The valor keep you, and may no shadow fall upon the Isle of Kings. Long have I owed you thanks, for you have so many times sent to me your son, Anardo Alderion, the greatest elf friend that now is among men, as I deem. At this time I ask your pardon, if I have detained him overlong in my service, for I had great need of the knowledge of men and their tongues which he alone possesses. He has dared many perils to bring me counsel. Of my need he will speak to you, yet he does not guess how great it is, being young and full of hope. Therefore I write this for the eyes of the king of Numenor only. A new shadow arises in the east. It is no tyranny of evil men, as your son believes, but a servant of Morgoth is stirring, and evil things wake again. Each year it gains in strength, for most men are ripe to its purpose. Not far off is the day, I judge, when it will become too great for the Eldar unaided to withstand. Therefore, whenever I behold a tall ship of the kings of men, my heart is eased, and now I make bold to seek your help. If you have any strength of men to spare, lend it to me, I beg. Your son will report to you, if you will, all our reasons. But in fine, it is his counsel, and that is ever wise, that when assault comes, as it surely will, we should seek to hold the Westlands, where still the Eldar dwell, and men of your race, whose hearts are not yet darkened. At the least, we must defend Eriador, about the long rivers west of the mountains that we name Hithyglir, our chief defense. But in that mountain wall there is a great gap southward in the land of Galenardon, and by that way inroad from the east must come. Already enmity creeps along the coast towards it. It could be defended and assault hindered, did we hold some seat of power upon the nearer shore. So the Lord Aldarion long has seen. At Vinyalonde, by the mouth of Guathlo, he has long labored to establish such a haven, secure against sea and land. But his mighty works have been in vain. He has great knowledge in such matters, for he has learned much of Círdan, and he understands better than any the needs of your great ships. But he has never had men enough, whereas Círdan has no rights or masons to spare. The king will know his own needs, but if he will listen with favor to the Lord Alderion and support him as he may, then hope will be greater in the world. The memories of the first age are dim, and all things in Middle-earth grow colder. Let not the ancient friendship of Eldar and Dunedain wane also. Behold, the darkness that is come, that is to come is filled with hatred for us, but it hates you no less. The great sea will not be too wide for its wings if it is suffered to come to full growth. Man may keep you under the one and send fair wind to your sails. Woof. I mean, this is significant. So this is, I mean, this ties it all in, right, Michael? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we usually wouldn't read a passage this long, but I think it was important to to read the entire letter from Gilgalad because this this is um, sort of departing, obviously not directly related to the love story between Aldarion and Arendis, but this ties their narrative in to the broader story of Sauron and the activities in Middle-earth, which will be, we know, the focus of the show coming up. So this letter really charts out everything that's been going on from the perspective of Gilgalad in Middle-earth for the last you know 100 years or so when Aldarion was there working with Gilgalad. So uh, I think it gives us a lot, and we can talk more about the specifics, but um, this letter from Gilgalad gives us a lot to think about in terms of what's been going on in, in Middle-earth. Right. We know, you know, the darkness rising in the east and we've got Sauron stirring up, stirring up that trouble. And I, what I find really interesting, a couple things about this letter. 
One is that Aldarion is clearly, you know, in the in Gilgalad's confidence. Like he yeah. is talking with the elves. He is he is strategizing. He is leading in a sense. Yeah. He's in their part of their council. And this is what he's supposed to be doing in Numenor. But right. he is doing it instead in Middle Earth. You know, he is literally just forsaken his duty and um and he's he's elsewhere and it's playing out right so yeah the juxtaposition between how he is perceived by gilgalad as described in this letter and what we've seen of him in numenor and in his dealings with horrendous so uh you know how tarman elder sort of thinks about him and how horrendous thinks about him it's really jarring because it's like two different people you know we've seen him be petty and petulant and childish and uncaring um and unperceptive and prideful um and ambitious we've seen all of these things through the this half of his personality his life with horrendous and his life in numenor but with gilgalad in middle earth it's the exact opposite gilgalad calls him the greatest elf friend that now may be among men as i deem i mean that is a tremendous statement and he, he says that his, uh, let's see, what's this line here? Uh, he refers to his counsel as ever wise. I mean, Gilgalad obviously has a very, very high um, opinion of Aldarion. And so he's clearly in his element. He's doing a great job. He's being a leader. He's being kingly, but in Middle Earth and not in Numenor where we've been seeing things play out with horrendous in this story. So it's very, very interesting right. to see those. And it is interesting. It, I think it speaks to just his nature. Middle earth could give him what, what Numenor never could. Like it's the novelty and the adventure and excitement of it. Whereas Numenor, you know, there's not these threats coming from outside. It's a very safe haven. It's, um, a, a sheltered existence, and he is—he is an adventurer by nature, and right. so could he only lead in this context? You know, it's an interesting question. Like, that's a, does that's he a really, thrive? Yeah, does he thrive because he's in Middle Earth, and you know, was it never meant to be that he—he would—that um, he would be able to to lead in Numenor? It's—it's it's something that you could really play with. You know, his character would be just really amazing to see on screen because there's so many questions and so many different aspects that could that could be explored in a in a film or a series like this so that is such a really good point and it um it kind of plays into something my own kind of personal theory about what drives a lot of people i think i think a lot of i think it's human nature for a lot of people i don't want to say everyone um but i think for most people to need something to strive for. I mean, you can just call it, you need a purpose, right? Um, Such but you a capitalist, need, Michael. No, I'm just kidding. I, that's, I mean, I'm not talking about economic <laughs> drive, but some sort of purpose. You need something to work towards. Um, right. And does it have to be- Goal-oriented. Yeah, you have to have a goal. You have well, to have something purpose, that you're doing. Yeah. No one wants to like, you know, sit and just sit in their rocking chair all day. I mean, I want to sit in my rocking chair sometimes to rest, but I want to have something that I'm thinking about, that I care about, that I'm striving against. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. that people- would prefer to have a struggle almost than to have uh, a utopia. I mean, I think a real utopia would turn out to be a dystopia. And I think that's kind of what we see with Numenor. Numenor is designed to be a place where the men of Numenor, it's the the gift to them and they're free of want. 
right? I mean, they're never sick. They live longer. They're more wise. They have everything they could ever want. There's no war. They're there's protected. no struggle. Protected. Right. And there's there's nothing to do in that environment. You have everything. There's really no it's struggle. Eden. It is. It yeah. is Eden. Yeah. And we and we yeah thematically we definitely see that play out where. Um, they get greedy, they get corrupted, and Numenor falls. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I love that. I I think you're onto something, and I I hope that that plays. Like I I hope thematically that makes an appearance. Right. I'm sure it will. Yeah, it people, has to. Yeah, I mean, people need something to struggle against, to strive for, and he can't. He doesn't find that in Numenor. There's nothing to do. It's like, uh, you know, the clock is 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 running on its own. The wheels are greased. Like, you know, there's no purpose for me here, but he can find that purpose in middle earth because there are evil men. There's a shadow rising. There are people that need to be helped. And so there's a struggle there. There's a fight to be had and I'm going to go fight it there. Well, he's a striver. Whereas Mm -hmm. like, whereas Arendis, I wouldn't characterize her as like a non-striver, but she is, she is um, content you know, she is, she strikes me more as like a peacemaker or mm. somebody who is going to, you know, the grass is green where you water it. Like she is um, striving to make where she is a better place. And yeah, I think they are just fundamentally really different drives clearly in life. Right, right. Well, and and to get back to Gilgalad's letter and how it ties into to Sauron's tale. So remember, this is around, you know, 1000 uh, of the Second Age. Sauron has not yet appeared in his fair form. He has not yet entered a region. He's not yet tried to, uh, you know, be a snake oil salesman and get in the good graces of the elves. Has not forged the rings yet. So he's still, it, he's just sort of moving in the shadows and motivating, you know, people in various parts and mostly, you know, evil men in the in the south and the east to sort of do bad things. Um, and so Gilgalad's just getting a sense of this. And Aldarion doesn't even know. He just thinks it's, oh, there's some evil men who are who are fighting us, you know. So Aldarion knows that some of the men are falling in shadow, but he has no notion that there's actually perhaps a servant of Morgoth, a greater power that is in play. Uh, and Gilgalad, who is the king of the elves, so he's got to have some wisdom, he's only really starting to realize that that might be the case. So this is when, so the the end of Tarman Elder's reign, you know, spoiler alert, and close to the beginning of Aldarion's reign, and and right in the middle of this story with Aldarion and Rendis, that's when Sauron's presence becomes known. So I'm more and more becoming of the opinion that Aldarion and Arendis will be characters in the first season and that they will p- be part of how we see the emergence of the reemergence of the shadow in Middle Earth. Oh, I cannot wait if that's the case. I really can't wait. And this whole struggle. So after Manilder reads this letter, he he's tortured by this. He goes back and forth. Should I get involved? Should I not get involved? Mm. And this is another classic Tolkien struggle. Like, should we stand aside while evil finds a foothold? You know, this kind of theme is seen all over Tolkien's works. Like, what is our responsibility um, as a society in, right. in conquering evil? And this is something Tolkien faced in his own life many times and, um, you know, being having been a soldier. So, 
Yeah, Maneldor is basically wrestling with whether or not Numenor will come to their aid because Gilgalad is asked, you know, for their aid. They they cannot face this darkness alone. So, you know, he kind of he kind of is going back and forth. And I'm gonna just read a very small section of his his um, kind of inner dialogue that's going on. When the Valar gave to us the land of gift, they did not make us their vicegerents. We were given the kingdom of Numenor, not of the world. They are the lords. Here we were to put away hatred and war, for war was ended, and Morgoth thrust forth from Arda. So I deemed, and so was taught. Yet if the world grows again dark, the lords must know, and they have sent me no sign, unless this be the sign. What then? Our fathers were rewarded for the aid they gave in the defeat of the great shadow. Shall their sons stand aloof if evil finds a new head? I am in too great doubt to rule, to prepare or to let be, to prepare for war which is yet only guessed, train craftsmen and tillers in the midst of peace for blood spilling and battle, put iron in the hands of greedy captains who will love only conquest and count the slain as their glory. So anyway, I'm just, I mean, he kind of goes on and he's wrestling. He's really wrestling with it. And, and I wish really we could, I wish we could read the whole passage because it's so good and so insightful. But um, yeah, he really is just torn up inside because uh, he's ultimately a king of peacetime. And it's been his view. This is supposed to be a war free world and that we're presiding over. Um, but now I'm presented with, it sounds like, unavoidable conflict. And do we just. Do we stand on the sidelines? Are we, you know, are we Switzerland or, and, and let our, our friends potentially die? Um, you yeah, know, doesn't that put blood this. on our hands or do we get involved and then get blood on our hands that way? It's, it's really a lose, lose. And Darman Elder really can't make a choice or isn't confident that he knows what the right choice is. Right. He never actually comes to a conclusion, but I love that he wrestles. He sits and we get him sitting in the discomfort of this question, you know, and, I, I think these passages are just so relevant. You know, do we fold hands while friends die unjustly? Let men live in blind peace while the ravisher is at the gate. What will they do? Match naked hands against iron and die in vain? Or flee leaving the cries of women behind them? You know, it's 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 a relevant question. It's like a an ethical um an ethical dilemma he 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 has. And yeah, he essentially doesn't answer the question for himself but um at this kind of while he's wrestling with this Aldarian comes back to Romena and um and sees his father and they have they have a discussion Aldarian returns to the capital where he is much gossiped about tongues are wagon uh it says he returns way stained and weary so he orders he goes scorched earth he orders every tree to be cut down aside from the elven tree that was gifted to him on his wedding day and this only he he let stand so the white elven tree is standing there and there's this beautiful passage where when the woodcutters had finished their work he he looks at this tree and it says quote standing amid the desolation and he saw for the first time that it was in itself beautiful in its slow elven growth it was but yet 12 feet high straight slender youthful now budded with its winter flowers upon upheld branches pointing to the sky it recalled to him his daughter and he said i will call you also in Calame. may you and she stand so long in life unbent by wind or will and unclipped for the first time, he sees it in, his, in itself beautiful. 
little little late there, buddy. But at least now you're seeing. <laughs> Don't know right. what you got till it's gone. But it's interesting, actually. It's very interesting that <laughs> so Orendis dismissed the Elvish birds already. You know, before Eldarion even. So she took that step, which was very significant. I mean, it's almost like a holy gift. It's you know, it's a s- symbolic and significant um, act to get rid of the gifts of the elves. Eldarion. Notably, he can't do it. He, he he destroys everything. He goes scorched earth, but does not destroy the tree. He leaves it untouched. And actually, in this moment, you know, he's he's coming in wrath. He's upset. He's been, you know, rejected by his wife, and he has rejected his wife. Um, and he's he understands that their relationship is over. And in that sadness, though, he still can't bring himself to destroy the tree. And actually, he sees that it's beautiful. Um, well. I think it's because of, you know, it does, it says that it reminds him of his daughter. And so. So you don't think there's any, there's any regret or any connection to horrendous? Well, no, no, I'm sure. I'm sure there's a lot of regret, but I think it's more, the reason I think it's more complex for him is that like the, the birds for her were representative of this union, this marriage, like two is one. And so for her, they became a symbol of something that was gone and for him you know he can still appreciate it in part because he still has an column a i think it's different it's a little bit different he sort of substitutes he's like well horrendous is done but i still got my daughter so i'm gonna focus on that now maybe yeah i think so but yeah it's a that's a really intense and poignant moment um, where he finally recognizes its beauty so essentially after this he goes to um his father and he informs him that he is going to leave the island and he's going to have his daughter come to the capital and commend his daughter to his mother's keeping and that she will one day rule and he is absolutely scathing of his appraisal of Arendus's behavior when he's when he's talking to his father so remember, th- we have a meeting here between Eldarion and Tarman Elder. Tarman Elder has just read from Gilgalad uh, a letter that indicates a shadow is rising and Tarman Elder has got to make a choice that he really doesn't feel equipped to make. So Tarman Elder is going to resign the scepter to Eldarion. He's made that decision in his own mind. Um, and Eldarion is in emotional turmoil right now. He feels like, I hate this island. I hate everything, you know, and I'm destroying my house and I don't want to be here anymore. And so he's in, not really in an emotional place to deal with the conversation that his father wants to have. Um, And so to to read from the book here, Aldarion says, I will go from this misenchanted isle of daydreams where women and their insolence would have men cringe. I'll use my days to some purpose elsewhere where I am not scorned, more welcome in honor. Another heir you may find more fit for a house servant. Of my inheritance, I demand only this, the ship here alone day and as many men as it will hold. My daughter, I would take also, were she older, but I will commend her to my mother. Unless you dote upon sheep, you will not hinder this and will not suffer the child to be stunted, reared among mute women and cold insolence and contempt of her kin. She is of the line of Elros and no other descendant will you have through your son. I have done. I will go now about business more profitable. Yeah, so he's like, he is scathing. And he's described in this scene as gray and hostile. Um, Yeah, cold, gray, and hostile when he comes to seek his father. So Menelder is saddened 
by this encounter. And, you know, he, but he softens a little bit and he does reveal that he would like to pass the scepter on to Aldarion. I mean, think about this. Aldarion basically storms in and for no real reason, no prompting, is just like, I don't have to be your heir. Screw this. I'm out. You know, I'll take my ship. I'll take my guild adventurers and I'll, you know, go to Middle Earth where I'm appreciated. I don't want your, you know, stupid scepter. You know, I'm done. And really for no reason. Like, Tarmanolder hadn't really said anything yet. Aldarion just bursts in and has this temper tantrum. And and like you said, Tarmanolder just kind of sadly listens, knowing that he's already made the decision to resign the scepter and that he's about to tell his son that. And then he does. And then he, you know, slowly and calmly and just very straightforwardly tells Aldarion, you're going to be the king. And Aldarion's kind of uh, gobsmacked, you know. It, it, it's like the reality of his father's greatness and uh, lack of pride. It just sort of hits him like a it's like cold water is being dumped on his head. And it instantly cools right, down and is right. kind of ashamed. And they reconcile here. You know, after his temper tantrum where he, you know, we didn't read a lot of this dialogue, but he says, she doesn't love me anymore. He essentially is like, she does not love me or aught else. She loves herself with the Numenor as a setting and myself as a tame hound to drowse by the hearth hearth until she has a mind to walk in her own fields. But since hounds now seem too gross, she will have in Colomate to pipe in a cage. But enough of this. Have I the king's leave to depart or has he some command? (laughs) Um, and this is kind of when the king reveals, you know, that he'd like to, he'd like to end his time as king. And, and I think that Aldarion feels convicted at this point. I think he feels, he feels a little bit convicted and regretful mm-hmm. and he kneels and he, and he accepts. And this is the passage that describes Aldarion's reaction. And it's, I think it's really sort of moving. Aldarion stood still for a moment in amaze. He had braced himself to face the king's anger, which willfully he had endeavored to kindle. Now he stood confounded. Then, as one swept from his feet by a sudden wind from a quarter unexpected, he fell to his knees before his father. But after a moment he raised his bowed head and laughed, so he always did when he heard of any deed of great generosity, for it gladdened his heart. Father, he said, Ask the king to forget my insolence to him, for he is a great king, and his humility sets him far above my pride. I am conquered. I submit myself, wholly. That such a king should resign the scepter while in vigor and wisdom is not to be thought. Yet so it is resolved, said Minelter. The council shall be summoned forthwith. So, that's a beautiful prose. Yeah, finally this... Very beautiful. Finally, this act of forgiveness and kindness like softens him. And it's what's missing, lacking from this entire narrative. And in this moment, you know, he his armor falls and he's able to reconcile at last with his father. And if only this moment had existed between he and Arendus. But alas, we never get that. Nope. Nope. Never get it. And this is essentially where the narrative ends, um, the finished narrative anyway. Yeah. Um, there's there's a little bit more uh, here about, um, uh, so Tarman Elder writes a letter to inform Arendus um, that he's resigned the scepter to Aldarion. And 
she's not really happy about it um, because she reads it to be a rebuke of her. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting that she per- perceives this act of really politics. I mean, it has everything to do with other matters, war and and things really that are outside of her relationship with Aldarion. But she reads it as having reflecting um, Tarman Elder's judgment of her relationship with Aldarion. So it's kind of, it's like, it's not about you, Arendis, but she kind of reads it that way. Um, and so she feels like Tarman Elder is favoring Aldarion and rebuking her. Um, and she writes back, you know, kind of um, saying, I'm not going to, I'm not going to come to the capital, um, but allowing uh, Ancalame to go. And Aldarion reads the letter that Arendis writes back and and he just sort of bitterly says uh he acknowledges his own folly and his own contribution to Arendis's sad life now and he says um then with a bitter laugh he gave back the letter to the king oh um a- actually the so the passage reads then Aldarion read the letter and the king regarding the face of his son said doubtless you are grieved but for what else did you hope not for this, at least, said Aldarion. It is far below my hope of her. She has dwindled, and if I have wrought this, then black is my blame. But do the large shrink in adversity? This was not the way, not even in hate or revenge. She should have demanded that a great house be prepared for her, called for a queen's escort, and come back to Armenelos with her beauty adorned, royally, with a star on her brow. Then well nigh all the Isle of Numenor she might have bewitched to her part and made me seem madman and churl. If Valor be my witness, I would rather have had it so, rather a beautiful queen to thwart me and flout me, than freedom to rule while the lady Elastirne falls down dim into her own twilight. The nerve of this so, guy, though, saying what she should do. You know, she is done. She doesn't want to be the queen anymore. That future is, is right. gone for her, you know. But he's mm-hmm. he's really judging her character at this this passage by saying do the large shrink in adversity like shame on her for right. behaving this way but i think he has no room to judge i think they both behave very badly yeah well and he i mean he's simultaneously accepting blame accepting responsibility for his own part in this like he recognizes you know her her poor behavior now really shows how badly i treated her because she was so great before and now um she's kind of sunk low by you know, by not fighting back, by by not seeking to reclaim any sort of um, place in in Numenor, by sort of withdrawing, and boy, I must have treated her badly if if that's how she's going to behave. Um, but then at the same time, as you pointed out, he's judging her for it. So I mean, he never really can fully fully accept one hundred percent responsibility. He's simultaneously taking the blame but also turning it back on her. So it's, it's you know, he, he never quite gets there and understands her or, or feels fully guilty about what he's done. Right. So we'll read the very last, the very last part of the finished narrative and then we will, we will leave our lovers there. So it says, then with a bitter laugh, he gave back the letter to the king. Well, so it is, he said, but if one has a distaste to dwell on a ship among mariners, another may be excused dislike of a sheep farm among serving women. But I will not have my daughter so schooled. At least she shall choose by knowledge. He rose and begged leave to go. 
So that is it. That is where we leave our our lovers, at least for the for the finished narrative. So we will do again further course of this narrative in the next episode, um, mm-hmm. which is penned by Christopher Tolkien, and it's um, a lot of thoughts and a lot of excerpts on what would have been written and what Tolkien possibly intended for this story. So, but all we, we really hope- know is that Arendis is being left behind. You know, she's intentionally withdrawing from public life and going to stay behind. Um, Aldarion's going to be the king with his mission being to aid Gilgalad in the fight against Sauron. He's going to ensure that Ancalame is brought to the capital and trained up to be the king's heir. And that's that's where the finished narrative ends and the, the further course that we know of um, before we get to the speculations and sketches that Christopher Tolkien gets us. Yeah, well, I I enjoy this narrative so much, and I'm looking forward to talking more about what could have potentially played out, what may still play out on screen. So much more to come, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in this far, if you're with us this far. We're going to be moving on to the Peter Jackson films pretty soon, so that's something we've been looking forward to and kind of working our way up to. You know, this show is about adaptations of Tolkien's works, and that is by far the biggest adaptation that has ever been made, so... Um, you know, I grew up with it. Obviously, we're really excited to talk about it. So, yep, yep. So that's that's coming. But uh, until next time, may the hair on your toes never fall out. Describe a hobbit hole. A hobbit hole. I don't really know what I have think, it. What do you I, think it would be? Uh, I think maybe I've seen a bit of Lord of the Rings, but I haven't uh, finished it. I think it's where they live. Maybe there's a hole that goes underground and yeah, that's where they live. Yeah, it kind of makes sense because like, if there's hobbits and it's called a hobbit hole, maybe it's like maybe somewhere it's their where home. they live. Maybe. What do you imagine the hobbit hole is like? Hmm, I don't really know. <laughs> like Maybe <laughs> there's like... Since it's in like a cave, probably there's a pro- um, there's they, probably just like big holes in the rocks mm-hmm. where they put their um, stuff. Okay. Now what? That was my cousin's uh, kids. I love the power of deduction. <laughs> They're like, "What's a what's a hobbit hole?" Well, it's a. Uh, Hole, so maybe it's where they live. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Like, okay, hey, you're <laughs> reasoning your way to the answer. <laughs> yeah, I think the, I think they're pretty young. I I didn't really encounter the Hobbit until I was I think I was like nine or ten, and I don't think either of them are quite old enough yet. But it is so cute to hear them kind of like muddle through and, and there is some familiarity with it yeah they, i mean because they said they recognize it related to lord of the rings because they said we don't really kn- i don't really know lord of the rings so i don't know so like they knew what it was from but they didn't know enough about lord of the rings to be able to answer the question right right but it's in their it's in the uh-huh. their awareness in their you know yeah. orbit uh, which I think is I this this series is just so it's so prevalent like in our culture, which I always find really fascinating. Like most kids have at least heard of Lord of the Rings or heard of some right. aspect of this. Because I think story. If, if 
So that if I didn't know what a hobbit was, like if I didn't know that a hobbit was a person, if you just if it was just like a nonsense word and someone said, you know, what's a hobbit hole? Or like if someone said, what's a what's a borgo hole? You know, I don't know what a borgo is. So what's a borgo hole? I don't know. Is it like a wound? Is it where like, you know, a hole in the, you know, I wouldn't know that it's a place where you live, but maybe, maybe they did know what, that a hobbit is a person. So that helped them like deduce. Okay. It's like, it's like a cave. It's like where you live, you keep your stuff, um, you hang out, you live there. So that's, that's, that's pretty good. I'm impressed with like kids, their ability to deduce the correct answer and figure it out. So much smarter than we give them credit for. Um, once again, folks, send us your clips of your kids talking about uh, all things Tolkien because it, it's it's so enjoyable and I love listening to their yeah, cute yeah. little voices. Just wonderful, beautiful innocence. So that this has been another episode of uh, what are kids talking? Is that what, we're talking what are about? kids talking about or what kids are talking about? What what are your what kids, kids talking are about? Are talking what are my about? kids talking about? I don't know. That's going to be another Twitter poll. What should we name our segment? <laughs> All right. Well, it's, I think that if we ever run out of material, we can just throw – we can do a whole episode of kids talking about Tolkien, and I think it would be probably infinitely more entertaining than whatever we were planning on talking about. Yeah, exactly. And then we can get someone to animate it, which I think they do this. Was it you who was telling me about this YouTube channel where there's an animator who just animates yeah. well, and- stories? Yeah. I think I know this exists somewhere, but that would be great if there was, there was like, a Lord of the Rings. Uh, Jimmy edition. Fallon would do sketches where like kids would write in stories. And, oh yeah, um, it was pretty amazing because kids are just obviously hilarious and precocious and also very creative. So the stuff that they come up with is is just amazing. Yes, good imaginations. All right, folks. Well, thanks for tuning in, and we will see you next time. <laughs>